Well, amen, amen, right? You know, that was a great uh, Sunday afternoon that we got to spend together, and if you were here, you know it. Uh, if you were not here, I'm so sorry that you missed out on that, that great time we had together. We, we enjoyed a, just a great time of fellowship, eating, and uh, just uh, sharing you know, good, good uh, moments together, and then we celebrated, as you saw, with 16 uh, people publicly professing their faith and receiving baptism. And uh, I just want to remind you, uh, before we continue in our service, that as we are celebrating our 75th anniversary this fall, uh, we have set a goal and we are praying that God would uh, be gracious to us and allow us to see 75 people come and profess their faith in Jesus Christ uh, this fall. We're in, that's going to be something amazing. This is not just going to happen by accident. That is actually why and part of why we are doing Who's Your One? Because we want to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. Um, if, if you have not been baptized, as Chris said earlier, I just want to encourage you once again to talk to, to me, one of our pastors, one of your life group leaders, uh, someone else who can just give you uh, help with that. We'd love to, to, to be with you in that journey. Um, if you have not yet uh, signed up and joined in on Who's Your One, we're like in the middle of our 30 days of praying for our ones, this person that God's put on our hearts. There's still plenty of time and plenty of room for you to put um, a card, a Who's Your One card. Um, if you haven't seen those, it looks like this, and they're out there in the lobby. There's a prayer wall. You can tear off a card, and you can keep on praying for someone. You can start praying for someone. We're doing it for 30 days but we're not stopping after those 30 days are over, so there's still time uh, for you uh, to join in and be part of reaching our community, uh, seeing our friends, our neighbors uh, come to faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? Well, it is uh, my privilege and uh, uh, great joy to welcome our guest speaker today, uh, Dr. Jeff Orge. It's not a stranger to us. If you've been around Southwinds for very long, you've You've experienced this teaching before, and you are glad right now that he's here with us. He's been the president of Gateway Seminary for 18 years. Um, he is a phenomenal leader. He's the author of nine books. He has shared God's word with us so effectively and clearly before. I know he's going to do that today. And so I want to invite him to come. Would you just give him a warm Southwinds welcome? Thank you, Southwinds, and thank you for inviting me back. A delight to be here again with you. Uh, open your Bibles with me to the book of Col uh, Ephesians, chapter 3. Don't get nervous. I do know which sermon I'm preaching. I just had a little, <laughs> little, little brain moment there. Okay, e Ephesians, chapter 3, where in just a moment I'll read a passage of Scripture that'll be the foundation for today's message. And while you're turning to Ephesians 3, let me congratulate you on 75 years of ministry as a church. Yeah. And let me also congratulate Pastor Mike on he's nearing 20 years of being the pastor here at Southwinds Church, and I'm grateful for that as well. If you have any question you'd like to ask me about Gateway Seminary, if you'd like to be a student or a donor or a friend or just know more about us, I'll be here between the services and glad to do that. But I've not come to talk about the seminary this morning. I've come to talk about you, your church, and the mission of God as it's expressed through you today. 
As I came today, I noticed the display boards in your lobby, which describe how a small group of people in 1947 banded together to found what has become Southwinds Church. What drove those people to do that in 1947? Well, it was a sense they had that they were on mission with God, that they were joining in God's mission to not only reach people in this city, but also start a church that would have a ministry that would help reach people around the world. What drove those people was not a desire for a new building or even so much a desire for a new church. What drove them was a desire to be on mission with God. Now, there's been a word coined in our generation that describes that. It's a word called missional. And it means to be a missional Christian means to be a Christian who's on mission, a Christian involved in God's mission, a Christian who gets it and gets with God in doing his mission, to be a missional Christian. What I want to talk with you this morning is not so much about what drove those people in 1947, but I want to talk about how that same spirit of being a missional Christian is supposed to be driving you today. And the same kind of commitment that led them to plant this church in 1947 is a part of what you can do in this church to propel it forward in its next decades of ministry together. Now, in order to challenge you about your missional responsibility this morning, I want to read you the story of one missional Christian in the Bible who told us how he became on mission with God and what it meant for him. His name was Paul, and he tells part of his story in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. He starts by writing, I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. This is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. So then I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are your glory. Now, this passage of Scripture begins, your life paralleling the writers, by saying that our missional responsibility actually comes with our salvation experience. Now, there are three phrases in the Bible that help us understand this. First, look at verse 7. Paul said, I was made a servant of this gospel. Now that's an interesting phrasing. Normally when the word servant is used, it's described what we do to another person. But this is the only time really in the Bible where it's used to describe not serving a person, but serving something else. It's serving the gospel. Paul says, I became a servant of the gospel. Now my friends, the gospel is powerful. The Bible says the gospel is the power of God and the salvation. The Bible says the gospel has the power to literally transform a person, eliminating their old life and giving them a new life. The gospel is powerful. So what does anyone need to do to serve this such powerful gospel? Well, there is only one thing the gospel cannot do for itself, and that is the gospel cannot transmit itself from one person to another person. 
The gospel needs someone to speak it from one person to another or to write it from one person to another or to somehow make a video of it from one person to another. But the gospel needs to be communicated. And so when Paul said, I became a servant of this gospel, he said, I became a facilitator of the gospel. I became a sharer of the gospel. I became a communicator of the gospel. I became a transmitter of the gospel. I serve the gospel by doing for the gospel the only thing it needs to have done for it, and that is communicated it with another person. You have that same responsibility this morning. You're a servant of the gospel. But when did that happen to you? Well, next phrase. Paul says, I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me. What about that? What does it mean, the gift of God's grace that was given to me? Well, we know from other places, even in the book of Ephesians, that the gift of God's grace is a biblical way of saying the gift of salvation or my conversion experience. For example, Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you are saved uh, by faith, and that not of yourselves, it is, it is a gift of God. And so the Bible says that salvation is a gift of God's grace that comes to us. And so Paul borrows that language, or in fact, he in fact, in fact invents that language when he writes this and says, I became a servant of this gospel when? By the gift of God's grace that was given to me. And then there's one more phrase that's important for us this morning. He says, this grace was given to me in verse 8, the least of all the saints, saying to us, Despite everything he had done in his life that wasn't pleasing to God, God had still chosen him to be a servant of the gospel. Now let me see if I can update that for you this morning, these same three phrases. First, you became a servant of the gospel. This means that you have a missional responsibility. You, every one of you, has a responsibility to get the gospel to other people. Whether you speak it or write it or share it or, or live it or some, way other, or some other way communicate it, you have that same missional responsibility. Now, when did that happen to you? Well, just like Paul, it happened to you in the moment of your conversion. When you received the gift of God's grace, in that moment, you received your missional responsibility. Now, I know what you're thinking. I did not know that happened to me. I, I was a six-year-old at a vacation Bible school when I was a child, and in that moment, I prayed and asked Jesus Christ into my life, and he gave me the gift of salvation. You're telling me in that moment I received a missional responsibility? That's exactly what I'm telling you. I don't care if it happened for you at a vacation Bible school when you were six or at a youth camp when you were standing out by a campfire and someone was strumming a guitar and invited you to receive Jesus and you did. Or maybe for you it was in a, in a college setting where you were in a dorm Bible study or perhaps you were an adult and someone from this church at, at work invited you to come and you heard the gospel here and received Jesus Christ. Listen, it doesn't really matter whether you were at a vacation Bible school, a youth camp, a college dorm room, or here in Southwinds Church. In the moment of your conversion, in the moment of the language of the text, when you received the the gift of God's grace, in that moment, you became a servant of the gospel. In that moment. Now you're thinking, is it really possible to get that kind of significant responsibility and not even know it? And the answer to that is yes, and I'll give you a couple of examples. The first one comes out of my world at the seminary. We call it syllabus shock. Now, syllabus shock works like this. 
an unsuspecting new student signs up for seminary and they make a commitment to earn a degree and then they go to their first class. And they're handed the syllabus, which looks like a small notebook. And they start looking through the syllabus and they see the books they have to read and the papers they have to write and the interviews they have to do and the classes they have to attend. And suddenly they are shocked at the responsibility that's come with the commitment. But let me give you another illustration of making a commitment and not fully understanding all the responsibility. Marriage. <laughs> 42 years ago, my wife and I stood in a Baptist church, somewhat like this one, and a pastor said our uh, vows, and we said, I do. But we actually had no idea what we were doing. We were making a commitment without fully understanding all the responsibility that was going to unfold out of that commitment over our lifetime. Now, my wife is sitting right here. And if we had the time, and she had the inclination, and she has neither, uh, to come up on this stage, she would join me in saying what I'm about to say to you. So don't rush over to her after and say, I can't believe he said that, because she's heard this before. In fact, she's said this before. But I've actually been married to three different women. I've just been married one time. But I've been married to three different women. I married shy Ann, who could hardly look at you when she spoke to you and didn't want anybody to notice her and really didn't want to do anything that was noticeable. And then she morphed into supermom with three children and a minivan. And I watched this transformation and I thought, what happened to shy retiring Ann who's now taking over the world, it seems, with these three children? And then, and then, my wife morphed again into super ministry Ann. And now, the shy woman that I married who morphed into super mom is now speaking in conferences and hosting major events and standing up in front of the seminary in, in a classroom and even teaching. And I asked her one day, how many more of you are there? <laughs> and she laughed and said, well, to keep you on your toes, maybe at least one more that's coming. I'm not sure. Well, we make light of that, but the reality is 42 years ago when we got married, I made a commitment to my wife that I was going to love her and honor her and cherish her. And a part of that was helping her to develop and to grow and to become all that God wanted her to be. And I had no idea what that was, and frankly, neither did she. But now that we've seen the fruition of it, I've had to continually adjust over the years and watch this thing transpire in front of me, the beautiful development of our marriage and particularly of my wife's ministries and life. I got all that responsibility in the moment that I said I do. Now, just to help you understand this, I'm the same charming man that I've always been. <laughs> My wife will tell you it's been 42 years of sheer marital bliss just being, that's not quite right. I didn't think so. All I'm trying to get you to understand is this. It is possible for you to make a commitment and to get significant responsibility and not even know it. But that doesn't invalidate the reality. In the moment of your conversion, in the moment of your conversion, borrowing back now the language of the text, in the moment that you received the gift of God's grace, you became what? A servant of the gospel. Updating that for today, I would say it this way. In the moment that you became a Christian, you became responsible to help other people become Christians. 
In the moment that you became a Christian, you became responsible to be on mission with God to get, uh, to get his message to other people. In the moment that you became a Christian, it became your task to share, communicate, transmit the gospel to more and more people. Now, some of you are thinking, eh, that's preacher talk. That's not me. And I'll tell you why it's not me. Because if you knew, if you knew the wickedness in my life, if you knew how much lust and greed and bitterness and anger, and eliminating all that really dirty stuff, if you just knew how low, how, how small my faith is and how large my doubts are, If you really knew who I am, you wouldn't give me that responsibility that you're talking about this morning because frankly, I'm not up to it. Well, I have good news for you. The Bible says you are. And here's how I know that. What did Paul write about himself? He said in verse eight, this grace was given to me the least of all the saints. So if we can imagine right now ranking all the Christians from all time on a continuum of the holiest to the least, who would be at the bottom of that list? This man right here, Paul, who I might remind you, if you're not familiar with his life, on one occasion actually conspired to and killed Christians. He had that on his resume. And he said... I'm the least of all the Christians, and yet, in the moment of my conversion, I received a responsibility to serve the gospel. And I would say the same thing to you today. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, where you've been. It doesn't matter how much you want to disqualify yourself by thinking right now about all the weaknesses and shortcomings and problems in your life. I'm telling you, you are not the least of all the saints. You rank a little bit higher on that continuum. And so the good news for you today is you have a missional responsibility. And your missional responsibility came to you in the moment of your conversion. And your responsibility is to get the gospel to more people. And you can't disqualify yourself, not any one of you in this room. If you're a follower of Jesus, this applies to you. Now, here's another big idea in the text. The second idea is this. Our missional opportunity is to reach people not go places. Now, I say it this way because a lot of people hear the word missions or on mission or missional and they immediately think of India or Angola or something like that. Listen now, nothing wrong with thinking of those places, but I want you to see in the text today that that's not the priority emphasis of the responsibility we have. Notice what Paul writes in verse 9. He said, I'm called, he said, to shed this light of the gospel for all. In other words, I want everyone possible to hear about Jesus through me. But then back it up to verse 8 where he narrows that field just a bit. He says, but my responsibility was to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ. Now, Paul does not, in this passage of Scripture, identify any place. I find that striking. 
If you turned over a little, uh, a few pages, a few pages back in the Bible to the book of Acts, you would find a significant there historical account of Paul's life. In fact, it's a lot of it travel log. He went from city to city to city. In fact, uh, there's five trips that Paul took in the book of Acts, and three of them are traditionally called Paul's missionary journeys. And the detail of Scripture is that he went from city to city to city, and the cities are named, and the events of those cities are, 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 are enumerated. Paul was one of the most well-traveled Christians in the first century world. He went to a lot of places. He knew a lot of people in those places. And yet, when he summarizes all of that here in Ephesians, he does not include one place. Instead, he says, I was called to the Gentiles. Now, admittedly, that's a lot of people. Remembering in the New Testament world, there was a distinction between Jews and Gentiles. And the Christian movement started as a Jewish movement. And Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles and the one who led in the breaking of the gospel into the Gentile world. And so, yes, that's a lot of people, but I want you to see the principle, not the size of the, or the scope of it. The principle is this. When Paul describes his missional opportunity, he does not say, I went to a place. He says, I went to a people. Now listen, Southwinds. There is a time for some people when changing geography is a part of fulfilling God's will in their lives. I get that. I have students at Gateway Seminary who've come to our school to train to go to another culture or another continent and share the gospel, and we support that. But understand this. The, trans the, the, the changing of places is a result of your commitment to reach people, not the cause of it and not the substitute for it. Now think through that sentence. Your responsibility to reach people, or excuse me, you, the, the idea of going places is a consequence of and the result of your commitment to reach people, not a substitute for it. Okay, let me illustrate it and see if you get the idea. We sometimes have students come to the seminary and they will, and when I meet the new students, I always ask them, you know, where are you from? Are you married? Do you have this? Do you have that? And one of the questions I ask them is, what do you plan to do when you graduate? And sometimes a student will say, well, when I graduate, I'm going to India. Or when I graduate, I'm going to China. Or when I graduate, I want to move to somewhere in South America. And I want to be a missionary. And I, that's fantastic. So if a student says to me, well, when I graduate, I want to go to China. I will say, that is fantastic. You are right in the best place. Whether you're in the Bay Area or Southern California, it doesn't matter. At either one of our campuses there, there is a huge Chinese community. You can move into the Chinese community. You can join a Chinese church. You can start learning Chinese language. You can start getting enculturated to Chinese culture. You can start reaching people right now. And they, oh, wait a minute now. Whoa, ho, ho, ho. That's for after graduation. What do you mean that's for after graduation? Well, after I graduate, I'm going to do that. So what you're telling me is you're called to religious tourism not to reach Chinese people. <laughs> Sometimes presidents can be rather direct. <laughs> you see, if you're called to people and you particularly feel a burden and a calling and a compelling to reach Chinese people with the gospel, go to work now. And if you do work well here now, I will likely want to raise the money to send you somewhere else in the future because I see it demonstrated in your life now. 
a student came to me and said, in answer to my question, what do you want to do when you graduate? He said, well, I've just come back from working for two years in a Portuguese-speaking country. I've learned a lot of Portuguese. I think God might want me to go back to a Portuguese-speaking country. There's two or three of them in the world where I'd be willing to go. And as soon as I finish here at seminary, that's where I plan to wind up. And I said, that's fantastic. In fact, I've got great news for you. Right down the street from the seminary is a Brazilian Baptist church that worships in Portuguese. His eyes got this big and he said, that is fantastic. Where is the church? What's the pastor's name? That's just what I'm looking for. And I smiled on the inside and I thought, that's a guy. I will do anything I can to help go anywhere in the world because he gets it. God has called us to reach people, not go places. Now, I want to underscore this. Sometimes in the reaching of people, God will speak to to some of you about changing places. I'm totally for that. All I'm trying to get you to see is that the changing places is not going to make you a missionary. Changing places is not going to make you a gospel sharer. Changing places is going to fulfill your responsibility to serve the gospel and transmit it to other people. If you'll start doing that now and then someday you need to change places, a lot of us will help you do that because we'll see it already demonstrated in your life. Now, are you following me? So here's my question for you today. If you're not going to change places, but you are responsible to get the gospel to other people, Here's my question. Who are your Gentiles? Who are you going after with the gospel? Who are you going to intentionally try to communicate to the gospel? You say, well, what do you mean? Well, for some of you, it's teenagers. And for some of you, it's truck drivers. And some of you might be bikers. It doesn't really matter that I'm able to identify it for you. It matters that you're able to identify it for yourself. God, who do you want me to reach? And like Paul said, he said, I want all people to know. Yes, I want all people to know too. But I'm asking you, who do you want to know the gospel from your lips? Who do you want to reach with the gospel? And it's really interesting because in a church like Southwinds, you are networked with all kinds of groups and and, and subgroups all across your community. Imagine if all of you just started talking about the gospel where you are in your subgroups. You say, well, I feel called to reach the nurses on the floor where I work, or I feel called to reach the, the, the students in the school where I teach. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. As you start sharing the gospel in these networks of people that God has given you, those are your Gentiles, by the way, the gospel is going to spread like wildfire across your community. So when I ask you the question, who are your Gentiles? Paul said, all people can hear the gospel, and I want them all to hear it. But then he got more specific and said, but there's a little specific group I'm going after with the gospel, and I would like to challenge you the same way. Pastor Mike has asked you, who's your one? Who's your one? I would ask you to take that one and then ask yourself the follow-up question, who's that one represent of the kind of people that I want to reach with the gospel? And whether it's a subgroup like a group of refugees who may have moved to your community or whether it's teenagers or here's one just a few weeks ago a woman came up to me and I wasn't preaching this sermon or even one like it but she came up to me after the service and said God has just really been speaking to me and has changed my direction entirely and I'm now working at with at-risk women in my community 
especially women who struggle with drug and alcohol addiction and who are mothers who are trying to make that whole thing work with their kids and their husbands are typically, or men have typically abandoned them. And she said, it's a whole new area that I've discovered and I'm discovering there are dozens, if not hundreds of women like this in our community. And I said to myself, you found your Gentiles. You found your people. You found the ones God wants you to reach. And she was so excited about the ministry that God had given her in that capacity. Okay, moving on. Here's the third idea in the text. Another big idea is that our missional efforts involve us in God's eternal purposes. Look down at verses 9, 10, and 11. This is some of the richest theologically deep language in the New Testament. I'll just be able to touch on it this morning. Paul says, this grace was given to me, verse 8 and then verse 9. This grace was given to me to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. This is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Bible says there is this great mystery. It's not a whodunit type mystery. It's the mystery of the unfolding of God's plan for the universe. This mystery was hidden for ages in God but is now being revealed where? The Bible says revealed through the church. The great mystery of God is this. He always had a plan for a people to become his own, to become his eternal companions. And those people are now becoming his eternal companions by coming to know Jesus Christ and becoming part of his church. And when we get involved in that process of people becoming God's eternal companions by becoming part of his church and knowing him forever, look what the Bible says in verse 11. This is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus. God has an eternal purpose. I could summarize it this way. Before there was anything, there was God. And he spoke, and the universe came into existence. And he wanted a people to be his eternal companions, so he met a man and a woman, and they fell away into sin. So he sent a Savior. And by means of that Savior, all the men and women who've come out of that first couple now have the capacity to come back into relationship with God and ultimately someday he's going to finally have his eternal companion people with him for eternity. That is God's eternal purpose. And when you take your missional responsibility and your missional opportunity and you get involved in what I'm describing right now of sharing the gospel with other people and seeing lives transformed, it connects you most closely as possible with God's eternal purpose. Let me tell you about your life. Your life is boring. You know why I know that? Because my life is mostly boring. Let me tell you about a typical week in the life of a seminary president. I wake up on Monday. I go to the office, I do email. I answer phone calls, I go to meetings, we have lunch, small salad, that's all old people can eat. After the small salad lunch, we go back to work and you know what we do in the afternoon? Email, meetings, and phone calls. Then I go home, we make dinner. We grill something and steam something because, again, that's all old people can eat. <laughs> and then 
If we're having a really wild night, we watch a show. Unless it's Wednesday, then we do laundry. <laughs> and on Thursday night, if we really work hard at it, we can remember to get the trash out because the guy comes early on Friday morning. <laughs> this is what we do at our house. We load dishwashers. We mow grass. We boring. We're boring. Your life's just like that. Except you would be thinking, yeah, but you left out the diapers and the aggravating husband and the unruly teenagers and the boss who's giving me grief. And yeah, I left all that out too. That's just all the more the same. Let me just ask you a question. Wouldn't you like to know just every now and then that you stepped out of boring and you touched eternity? Wouldn't you like to know every now and then you stepped out of boring and you did something that made a difference forever? Listen, I saw 13 baptisms on that screen just a few minutes ago, and while I was watching every one of those people go in the water, I was thinking about all of you. And I wondered which ones of you had a hand in those baptisms. How many of you looked up there and saw someone getting baptized and said, I took care of that couple's children so they could come to worship service and hear the gospel preached on the day they became Christians. You had a hand in them coming to faith in Jesus by caring for their children. Or you saw a child up there and you said, that's my grandson, and I shared the gospel with him and talked with him about all the questions he had about it, and finally one day he came to me and said, I want to accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and he did, and I saw him baptized on that screen this morning. I could go down the line thinking about every one of those people this morning and every one of you who had a connection to them. Let me tell you something. When you see that person go in the water and come back out, you ought to be heart singing in that moment saying, in that moment, I touched eternity. I had a hand in that. I participated in that. I stepped out of boring for just a moment and I was a part of getting the gospel to another person and seeing them come to faith in Jesus. And now that person, along with me, are going to be God's eternal companions forever. I touched eternity. Listen, Mike mentioned before I came up here some of the things I've done in ministry. I, I planted a church. I've led a state convention. I've been the president of a seminary, written a handful of books. I'm glad to have done those things. But do you know what means the most to me in ministry? It's the slideshow in my mind of individual people that I have talked to, to that I've talked with about Jesus Christ and seen them come to faith in Jesus because in that moment I know I did something eternal. And that's what I'm talking about this morning. Your missional uh, efforts connect you with God's eternal purposes. Well, last thing. Back to the text for just one more idea. And that is finally, your missional lifestyle includes some sacrifice. Back to the text. Last verse. Paul said, so then I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions, for they are your glory. You see, Paul said, I, I've been through some afflictions for you. All this I've been describing, he said, it cost me something. But he reminds them, don't let that discourage you. That's certainly not the way I see it. 
He says, these afflictions that I've lived through for you, they're for your glory. That's how I see them. So my friends, this missional lifestyle that we've been called to live, it will include some sacrifice, some what this verse calls afflictions. It means that it's going to cost you some time and energy and money and effort, some comfort. It's gonna cost you something to fulfill your missional responsibility, take advantage of your missional opportunity and connect your missional efforts to God's eternal purposes. It will cost you something. But you know how you'll see it? You won't see it as a sacrifice because you'll see it for the glory of the other person and even for the glory of God. What about this issue of sacrifice? What are you really willing to give that other people might hear the gospel? Your time, your energy, your money? What are you willing to give? You know, a few years ago, I came across a story of sacrifice that's been riveted in my life for a while now. It's the story of a couple named Mark and Deliah. Their story is told in a book called The Cry of the Kalahari. The Kalahari is a desert region in Africa where Mark and Deliah actually served for more than 30 years. But here's the story of how they got there. Let me just read these three paragraphs from their book. Mark writes, Deliah and I met in class at the University of Georgia, and it didn't take us long to find out that we shared the same goal. By the end of the semester, we knew that when we went to Africa, it have to, we would have to be together. We decided to take a leave from the university and earn the money we needed to finance our trip. Once the site had been chosen, we thought someone would surely grant us the funds to continue our work. But after six months of teaching, we had saved nothing. I switched jobs and began operating a stone quarry crusher while Deliah worked at odd jobs. At the end of another six months, we had saved $4,900 plus money for airfares to Johannesburg, but it was still not enough. Trying desperately to raise more, we piled everything we owned, stereo, radio, television, fishing rod and reels, pots, pans, everything, into our old station wagon and drove to the quarry one morning just as the men were coming off the night shift. I auctioned it all away, including the car, for $1,100. A year after we were married, we boarded a plane with two backpacks, two sleeping bags, one pup tent, a small cooking kit, a camera, one change of clothes each, and $6,000. It was all we had, but we were going to Africa to study the brown hyena. The brown hyena. Mark and Deliah Owens devoted more than 30 years to studying the large carnivores of the Kalahari Desert. They are considered the world experts on the brown hyena. I am, I am overwhelmed, honestly, by their sacrifice. 
that they would give so much for the advancement of scientific knowledge, and I'm grateful there are people who do such things. But then I have to ask us the question this morning. When people are willing to put everything on the line for the brown hyena, how can we come to church like this and whine about our comforts being crowded by the eternal call to share the gospel with the whole world? When so many in our world are willing to sacrifice so much to advance social justice causes, political agendas, and even the war on terror and other things around the world, when so many are willing to sacrifice so much, what is wrong with us that we come to church and push back when the preacher gets a little too close about challenging us to give our time and our energy and our money for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Listen, my friends, Lifeway Research recently did a survey. They asked 1,000 pastors, what do you consider the, the greatest idol in the American church? It wasn't even close. Number one on the list, what people want more than anything when they come to church, comfort. Comfort. It's too hot in the building today. Somebody was in my seat. Our classroom's too crowded. We're having to change our schedule to accommodate more people. Our church isn't like it used to be. It's not meeting my needs. Comfort. It is the idol of the American church. And so I challenge you this morning, Southwinds, be different. Be different. Accept your missional responsibility. Embrace your missional opportunity. Join your missional efforts to God's eternal purposes and be willing to make some sacrifices along the way. To give up your time and your energy and your talent and your treasure to say, God, use me, use me to accomplish something eternal for you. It was that spirit in 1947 that caused a little band of people to give birth to you. And now it's your opportunity to capture that same commitment and propel this church into the future for the generations to come. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, thank you for Southwinds Church. Thank you, Father, for the ministry they're accomplishing, the good they're doing, the impact they're making. But Father, move around this room today and stir this church up to greater works. Help them to understand the missional responsibility and opportunity they've been given and give them a purposeful, intentional determination to keep that mission going. And then, Father, I pray for individuals around the room today. I pray you'll speak to us about sacrifice. So many in our world are willing to give up so much for things that are so frivolous, so temporary. But you've called us to sacrifice for your eternal kingdom's advance. Give us a heart to do that. Put it in us, I pray that we might make a difference for you. And we ask for this and receive it in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.